Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. That's Joe Wilson. That is Stephen Jones. Uh, you didn't. You don't. You're not here by GPS, are you? It's making noises as I drive. No, no, not hearing it. We're smooth okay, sailing. Great. How did they do that, Stephen Jones? How did Apple invent technology to where my phone emits a noise that I can hear, but it does not transmit through the speaker? It's the same thing as those whistles that dogs can hear, but we can't. I think. You're lying to me right now, Stephen. You're lying to me. I don't <laughs> That was good, though, right? Come on. I come to you for real answers about Apple technology. Like, how did they hack into that iPhone if all iPhones are unhackable? They're the FBI, right? Like, I mean, they should be able to do something like that if they're the FBI. Ooh, 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 ooh. You crossed a dangerous boundary there, my friends. Um, it begs the question, is there, is, does, does your privacy take precedence over the threat of terrorist activity? You know, uh, obviously, Apple's made their stance and uh, and made it quite clear that privacy is number one to them. And I think, and we've had this conversation actually probably like last year. And you you didn't yep. be, you didn't believe how secure the devices were. I think that this most recent story t- kind of gives you some insight into how secure. Well, I do I do think it's important to note that the FBI went to Apple, which was the wrong way to do it. When the FBI just recruited a hacker. It got cracked, and then they dropped the thing called Turkey. And now Apple is asking the FBI to share that information uh, because they want to patch it. But you know, obviously, why would the FBI do that if they have a guy who can get in through the back door? But the truth is, everything is accessible. Everything is accessible. There's no unhackable computer. There is no uncrackable password. You can get into any system anywhere that's uh, that has a wireless uh, connection. Yeah. At any time. And you know, I I feel comfort in knowing that my device is very secure, and as long and it's in my possession, and I have a and there's a company that made the device that that's main priority is to protect that privacy. In well, so are you a member then of the cult of personality, what, or a personality of privacy? Why did I say personality? I don't know. What? Uh, oh, I'm still drinking coffee here. <laughs> it's still early, so. It's definitely early for me in my day off. So, yeah. Um, so, so expand upon that that question a little bit. What what cult are you referring to? The cult of privacy. Are you a person who prizes their privacy over other human lives? No. I mean, if if there's lives at stake, you know, then my privacy isn't very important, right? So then the question is, then can you justify the government monitoring us in order to prevent human death? Uh, you know, I, I it's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? It's a conundrum because I'm I find myself at that same question. Yeah, it's, is my privacy worth another human being's life? And if it is, if it is, then how how many does it take? How many lives does it take for me to feel like okay? Well, then, you know what? Too many people have died. Is one too many, or is a million where my breaking point is morally? Uh, and then the second part of that question is if. If my privacy is worth more than a human life, then how do we justify the government with the NSA and uh, the FBI hacking iPhones um, listening essentially to whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't expect you to have an answer because I, I don't have one myself. I, I don't, and, but I, I do think it's a slippery slope of, you know, once give, if they're given access to one device, then there's going to be a thousand more on the doorstep that they're going to be like, oh, this will be this will be great for this, you know, sort of thing. And what we, do you, what do you, how do you feel about the counter argument? If you have nothing to hide, then what, what are you, why are you so concerned with your privacy? 
I don't think it's about having things to hide. I think it's about you know a a right that we're given to to be able to uh, to have our own s separate identities and uh, and have things that are private to ourselves. I think that's a that's a, a right. I don't think I mean people don't always have things that they need to hide, but they want something that makes that individualizes them and makes them you know themselves i mean they you don't need to put everything on facebook you don't need to have everything written on the internet despite despite what all new mothers will uh will prove to the contrary yeah <laughs> you don't need to put everything on facebook yeah um no well said i think i think you're right about that i think that there's uh i think it's a valid uh valid argument that that your personal life is something that is a, an inalienable right you know guaranteed to you by the constitution and the bill of rights and as a result of that the government has no justification in sifting through your files, looking at your photos, um, or, or being involved with your private personal life in any way. However, there is another however here. Uh, even as little as two decades ago, uh, your privacy wasn't guaranteed because if there was a subpoena or a, uh, a warrant to search your, promise, your property or you were arrested for whatever reason, uh, if you had a safe with these private pieces of information in them, the uh, powers that be, uh, the legal authorities, could open that safe and look inside. And um, you know, at that point, they could they could be peeking into your life and, and looking at your private things anyway. So, the new precedent set with technology is that there's so much information that is either accessible through these somewhat uh, immoral means because they violate your civil rights. Uh, versus when there was a physical ability for them to come into your house and, and access that information, um, it's it's a it's quite the quandary. I myself yeah. find my I find myself saying that no life is worth my privacy. However, if we sacrifice that privacy openly, uh, then the one of the principles, one of the guiding principles by which our country is governed and what it functions on, and one of the beliefs that a lot of us hold dear. Um, are, is sacrificed and then it diminishes all of our quality of lives and, and uh, yeah and I think there's a level of security to having every door open it's like if you go it's like if you didn't have locks on people's doors right sure I mean everybody can just walk in and and there's I, no lock that can't be picked or broken yeah. and, and truth is if anybody I mean I can lock my front door but there's a window right yeah. there if somebody wants to get into my house you know if their intent is to get into my house the locked door isn't going to stop. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Most security is is not. I mean, it's easy to break if you want to, but it'll a lock will slow you down. Most people down, right? And and it it, it creates a sense of privacy. And also, if you, uh, you're in your home and someone's trying to get in, you can start to hear, you know, <laughs> you know. And I mean, doesn't it? Isn't it? Just, isn't it? Then just a false sense of security. If uh, I mean, if somebody's trying to get into my house, unless they're they're high on amphetamines and deranged uh, and, and can't properly plan, it wouldn't be hard for them to get into my house quietly. At least so quiet that I wouldn't be aware of their presence until possibly they were in in uh, within striking distance, uh, you know, of me or my family. So, um, like I said, so is there a false sense of security that comes from locks? There is. There, there, uh, there is, uh, but there's also a, a, a greater sense of security that comes from locks. It helps people sleep at night, um, right. and, and that's well, through, through 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 a uh, convincing yourself that you're safe when in fact you're not. Exactly. So I, you know, this is why I'm a proponent of of uh, 
owning and responsibly uh, storing firearms because at the end of the day, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes into my home, uh, I mean, admittedly, this is all, you know, this is all pretty far stretched paranoia. Yeah. Uh, which I think is worth noting. You know, most people, statistically yeah. speaking, are not going to find themselves in fear for their lives. You've never been in a situation where you're in fear for your life like that. Sure. Absolutely. And, and not only that, not only have I never found myself in that situation, I, it's difficult to imagine myself in that situation. Um, truly, uh, it would be uh, anomalous on every level, and uh, it would probably, you know, realistically, it would probably fuck me up for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, but I think that it's important to note that if the there is a comfort derived, if there is a comfort to have, it's not in locking your doors it's in knowing that you have the ability to defend yourself in a scenario where you might need to uh and in which case i'm a i'm a bigger advocate for somebody taking martial arts classes and learning self-defense um or having you know my first my go-to is a is i have a wooden bat you know if yeah. someone comes into my house if they have a gun it's over right i don't i'm not gonna have time to get my gun out I don't want to start a firefight. <laughs> uh, I, have a kid, I have a baby and a wife and cats, and I'd hate to see any of them get shot. Um, you know, shooting. But, but really, you would hold the cat up first. So, well, I would be like Conan, sick him. Conan would look at me like fuck you, and Carl would already be scattering. Yeah, hiding already, in the bathroom, be cl- clambering to get underneath something. Yeah. Uh, you know, in which case, then you know, I'd be, uh, it'd be me, and. Um, you know the, the the defense plan is is to to come at them with a wooden bat. Hopefully, f- crack them hard enough to break their arm. You know, because if they're they they have any sort of sense, they're going to block it. Um, mm. You know, and I'm I'm I have a fair amount of martial arts experience. I'm pretty confident in my ability to, to defend myself, physically speaking, as long as the accosting individual doesn't have a weapon. Um, so the hope, you know, would be that the bat can neutralize. Whatever the threat is, meanwhile, my wife is following me out of the bedroom with a gun. And if they get through me, then she has, you know, all bets are off. Yeah. Is the way I look at it. But, uh, like I said, it, it's, I think that the ability to, to protect yourself and defend yourself with martial arts is way more applicable. It's way more applicable than, uh, than a firearm. And a firearm takes no effort and it takes no thought and, and it's also irreversible. Um, which is all kind of it's all kind of a scary prospect the idea that you could permanently uh, end another human being's life literally with the twitch of a finger um, whereas if you have martial arts training there's a discipline that goes along with that where not only do you learn about how to defend yourself you learn about how to how to control your emotions how to control yourself when the adrenaline is dumped into your body uh, when you're scared for your life um, yeah. You know, I can honestly say that there, there's never been a situation in my in my training where I felt uh, threatened, life threatening uh, fear, but I've certainly uh, felt that adrenaline dump where, uh, you know, you feel that a, a, a desperate kind of um, sense of survival mode uh, that you wouldn't feel in any other simulated environment. Um, and it's as close to the real thing as I can imagine. So, and and while I don't have any firearms in my you know in my house, I do have a big dog that uh, that would let me know if there's uh, a party that should not be uh, around my property, right? So, <laughs> um, so that's good. Any 
Uh, we haven't said who's on the show today, Joe. I would love to hear who's on the show today. So this is part two of three-part um, uh, series of David Bowie uh, extravaganza here on Concert Pipeline. I wonder what David Bowie would think about all this. He what would world uh, of, about our podcast in general, or the people <laughs> or people celebrating podcast, him. I think I think I can do a David Bowie. I can channel Bowie for this. Okay, you're ready to go. I love it. That was great. Bowie. That's what he thinks. I, think, I mean, I'm just telling you, that was him speaking through me. He's in, from the afterlife. I heard him calling. I, I've never told you this, Stephen. I actually have psychic abilities, but uh-huh. the only person I can communicate with and channel is David Bowie. Can Can you get him to do a promo for our podcast? That'd be great. You're listening to Concert Pipeline with Stephen fucking Jones and Joseph Wilson. Thanks, David. But next time, can you say your name in the promo? Come on. You're a professional. Here. I can't hear you. I said you're thanks. Thanks, David Bowie. I said thanks, David Bowie. Uh, but next time, can you say your name in the promo? That'd be great. No, it's not really David. It's Joseph speaking. David. <laughs> well, so let's he calls say. Me Joseph. I don't know. He calls me Joseph. So. Yeah, but by your birth name. How nice of him. <laughs> right. Uh, my God. My God given name. My Christian name. Yes. Say. <laughs> Today, Joseph. We have uh, Joseph. Don't you start, man. Not you, man. We actually have Joseph Sumner. He goes by oh. jo- he goes by oh. Joe as well. Can I call him Joey? Yeah, I mean, if you're face to face with him, I'm sure you wouldn't mind. Uh, okay. Yeah, we have uh, Joe Sumner. He's from the band Fiction Plane, and also I didn't mention this in the interview, but he is Sting's son. Um, so uh, he, they've played a lot of shows with the Police and and that sort of thing, and and through that he met David Bowie um, at Live Aid yeah, years ago. Oh. I like it. I um I often wonder about sons who go into the same profession as their fathers. Not just yeah. like family watchmakers and shit and like, you know, fucking uh <laughs> fucking goldsmiths. Yeah. I'm talking about specifically you know, artists. It's always interesting to me when there's uh or or athletes, when there's a son of a father who decides that they're going to follow in their father's footsteps. I mean, doesn't it seem like those shoes are impossibly big to fill if your if your dad is Sting? Yeah, you'd think so. I mean, but it happens a lot, right? There's a lot of fathers and sons, sons out it's there. Very and and he does other things as well. I mean, in 2011, he founded a social video startup called uh, Vly Clone, um, and they called, were it's it was what? Vly Clone. Vly Clone. Spell that. V Y C L O N E. And so the app was released in 2012 and featured on Apple's best of 2012 list. Um, it's used to allow fans of so you can think you can da- so you think you can dance to contribute to the show as well. Um, and he also did another social video startup called Weave, W E E V, um, and uh, that's in conjunction with actor Stephen Moyer of True Blood. Um, so he's done oh, some, so he's done some startups as blood. well. So it's not he he doesn't just do a band; he has other things on the side. Um, but uh, Fiction Plane is where he's from, and he came uh, and played at the big David Bowie celebration at the Regency Ballroom in San Francisco. And um, so we interviewed him uh, to paint the, a picture, Joe. Um, I uh, I went with uh, a coworker named Marlo, and uh, she was awesome. She was great. She helped out with. Uh, yeah, she was on the last pod, right? She was on the last pod, exactly. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah. 
the competition. I know. Well, she she makes things happen. So she also made the interview. Oh, was that you implying that I don't? Uh. <laughs> there was a pretty firm implication that I don't make things happen. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what you make happen, Joe. Come on. I resent the implication. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. And so she she also got us an interview with Holly Palmer, who is in David Bowie's band. Nice. Um, like, Good job, Marlo. There was a there was a never ending sound check, Joe, and you can call it a sound check or a rehearsal, however you want it. Never ending sound check. Never ending sound check. Falcor. That's right. Yes. Betray you. Yeah. <laughs> Is it me? It's me. It can't be me. I love you. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so she got that interview. Well, I mean, pretty much. There's 70 performers uh, throughout the show, playing at this celebration um, of David Bowie. And so, they, there was an LA crew and a Bay Area crew. The LA crew had rehearsed the night before, but the Bay Area crew wasn't there for that. So, this is kind of like a first trial for them. And so, they just they did almost every song that they performed, which was 40 songs that night. Damn. Um, yeah. 40 songs, three and a half hour set. And so the sound check was. You sent me their. Uh, their uh, set list. Yeah, thank you. I was like, the lineup? No. Yeah. Uh, you sent me their set list. That's insane. Right? It was. It they was... had some good stuff in there, man. There was some fucking Velvet Underground. There was uh, there was definitely some good stuff. That, and it's Rolling Stones. Yeah, the artists got to pick some of the songs they did, and some of them related to Bowie, but weren't his songs in different ways. So. Um, I mean, it was it was just amazing. I mean, it was just incredible. And so we'd interviewed we interviewed different people while the sound check was going on, or while the performances were going on, even because they weren't on stage at that time. Um, and um, I can't hear. I can't hear. God. Yeah. So we'd interview people as they were on stage, or I mean, as they were coming off of stage, or during the sound check, while other people were sound checking and that sort of thing. And so. Um, that's how we got Holly Palmer. Uh, Marlo went up and was talking to her, and uh, and she was down to do an interview, and it was a great conversation. Um, we'll get to hear it in just a second. Um, and then part three next week uh, t for the big Bowie conclusion, um, it, we're gonna have Jerry Harris, uh, Jay, excuse me, Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads on the program, um, and uh, Jeremy Little, who's uh, uh, who performed uh, some some songs with them as well. Um, and uh, so I can only hear every third word you're saying, right? So Holly Palmer and Joe Sumner on the show. Uh, why don't we start it off with uh, the interview with Joe Sumner? Uh, actually, uh, before we get into that, uh, there was one song that you uh, particularly requested that I would uh, uh, record for you. And what song was that, Joe? Uh, uh, I'm driving in a TV. Life on Mars. That's correct. <laughs> there you go. Live on, <laughs> on Mars. Good job. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh, well, well, Joe Sumner sang on Life on Mars. Uh, so I, th I think it'll be a great segue to start with Life on oh, Mars. Sweet. Yeah, and then uh, and then hop into the interview with Joe Sumner. What are your What do you think? <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> Bless you, sir. I'm fucking apart man i'm fucking dying okay <laughs> jesus jesus that is great jesus. you have no idea steven oh my goodness what a fucking morning so far 
Oh, oh my god, my kid now, two days in a row, my wife has been like, 7 a.m., you get him. And I'm just like, oh, oh, it's so brutal. I normally wake up at like 7.30, but there's something fucked up about being awakened versus waking up naturally. Yeah. It's weird. Even yeah. if it's only 30 minutes, it's it's such a big difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. I, I'm awakened myself several, sometimes throughout the night, so we, we can, re- you know, we got it. We got that in common. Right, we're both we're both goddamn lunatics, is what we are. We are. What the fuck were we thinking having kids? We should just fucking stayed bachelors forever. I know. Too late for that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it clearly is. No regrets. No. It's totally it's totally worth it. I'm just saying. Yeah. You know, I kind of miss the taste of ramen with hot dogs in it. <laughs> How can you not? It's uh, it's simple. It's effective, and it's uh, it's got well, a. Yeah, I mean, that's still what you eat, but I, <laughs> I, 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 I myself now eat. Uh, uh, you know, whatever my wife makes, yeah. I'll eat it. Yeah. I don't give I don't give a shit as long as I don't have to cook it. That's what matters. Well let's get cooking let's get cooking with this interview with Joe. Here it is. Joe Joe Sumner. Fire away. Hi, this is Joe Sumner from Fiction Plane and you're listening to Concert Pipeline. It's a god of a small
I am here with Joe Sumner of the band Fiction Plan. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. How are you do doing? I'm doing excellent, but tonight you're not playing with Fiction Plan. I'm not playing with Fiction Plan. I'm playing with a guy called Scrote and a bunch of excellent musicians, and we're going to pay tribute to David Bowie, and we're going to raise money for cancer research. We are, and that's what it's all about. I mean, really, it's about having a great time, but you want to do a good cause at the same time. You want to do a good cause, but yeah, selfishly, it's about playing with incredible musicians and having a choir back you up and a, a string octet and insane drummers and bass players and everything is laid on for us beautifully. Yeah, and free carrots. Free carrots that, see, now we get to the heart of what, you know, why you came to San Francisco. Yeah, well, that's carrot, it, it's the, the carrot capital of the Northwest. <laughs> Seaboard, right? I didn't know that. You know, I've lived in the Bay for a long time, but you hear these facts sometimes from... Yeah, you've got the Pacific Northwest, and then you've got the Carrot Northwest. Yeah. So, Joe, tell me about uh, Bowie and kind of how you came to... First of all, obviously, you, said you mentioned Scrote, um, but uh, did he pull you into this? Scrote pulled me into this. He, so, this, this gig actually came out of just a kind of fun thing we do at a place called Molly Malone's in L.A. Yeah. And Where Flogging Molly was formed. There, there you go. Yeah, I would flog Molly. She deserves it. Um, but so we just get together and play an album by an artist, or you know, all the songs by Peter Gabriel or the Bee Gees or Burt Bacharach or something. And uh, the last we we did David Bowie last year, and then we planned to do it again this year, and he died, which was terrible and really a shock. And the week, the, it was maybe a week later that this gig was planned and suddenly it was sold out and everybody wanted to celebrate yeah. and be part of it. And it was super poignant that we were singing the songs right after he died and everything took on another meaning. Yeah. You mentioned doing David Bowie last year. I too did David Bowie last year in a different sense though. You did in the hair sense. Yeah, that, you're brave. You've got, you look like the, um, the guy from Striper who everyone thinks is Ted Cruz. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so yes, I, I dressed up for Halloween. Um, my daughter, she's five years old, and uh, she, her favorite movie is Labyrinth. And she wanted to be Sarah from the Labyrinth, and so I'm like, that is no pop culture reference on its own. I'm like, <laughs> I gotta be Bowie, right? Yeah, and Sarah from Labyrinth is just a little girl. Yeah, exactly. But but uh, yeah, hoodoo, voodoo, kudu, poodoo. That's yeah. you. Yes, that's me. And what do you so, do? So I was the Goblin King, so <laughs> I wore the amulet tonight, so I, I, I thought about dressing up, but I was like, I, I don't know. Yeah, there's, you know, I'll tell you, there's surprisingly little dressing up going on here. I there think. is, I expected a little more, like, especially from you, actually. Yeah, I know, I'm, I'm very bad at dressing up. My wife is very angry with me for not dressing up. But you know what, it's, that's one of those things which, apart from, the music is one thing, but it's very intimidating to try and Im imitate his fashion sense, because it really pushes the edges of good taste yeah. or bad taste, really. But uh, he, it's kind of thing, the stuff he wore was stuff only he could do. Yeah. So you put, you know, you put on like weird white pants that are pulled up too high, and you look like a loony. Exactly. And I was like, I might stand out in this crowd, but I don't know if it's a good way, in a good way. So. Yeah. I just, you know, he he was a unique guy. Yeah. And he was super skinny. I'm not there yet. Did you ever get a chance to see David Bowie live? Did you ever get a chance to meet him? I met him a couple of times and he was very personable and nice and just a, seemed like a decent bloke. But, uh, and everyone, there's a few, well, there are many people actually in the band tonight who played with him. Um, we just interviewed Holly Palmer. You did, and she was, she was fully in the band. Um, 
and also not on this gig but on the last one we did in LA uh, Tim Lefebvre was on it who played bass on the on Black Star oh. so he was he had front row seats for everything that was happening and the kind of the eulogy that the album turned out to be um, and I'm, I'm guessing that he knew all about it yeah so it's a it's a, a total trip did he tell you anything about kind of the, uh, the you know what was happening during that period? No, I think they were, you know, held held yeah. accountable for for their words, but right, rightly because it's you know it's it's up to you to f feel what you feel when you're not feeling good. Yeah. <laughs> and if for everyone else to talk about it all day is probably quite boring. For as public a person he was, he was very private at the same time. So. Yeah, I don't know much. I honestly don't know much about what he has been doing for a long time. I think he wants it that way, but um, but so tell me about how you you met him. I mean, was it uh, while your dad was playing with him? Or? I met him. I think I actually met him at Live Aid, uh, like in 1985, whatever that was. Uh, and then I met him again in New York at a show. I can't remember who was playing, but it was uh, he was just there, and it was he was lovely. Okay, we're next. You're next. Okay, we'll be ready to go. So. Um, so, uh, so tell me about your involvement with this show. I mean, like, what songs are you going to be playing on? Uh, I'm going to be singing "Life on Mars" tonight, under pressure. Heroes. Closing out the show, yeah. Yeah, Heroes, which is a big. Uh, that's a big uh, responsibility. That's a tough one. I'm scared of that. Ewan McGregor pulled it off last time, and you yeah, know he's. Got, I saw that. Yeah. He's got his Ewan McGregorness to to go around. So I've just got to. I actually have to just sing it. You'll do great. I'm I'm sure. So. And uh, I'm also duetting with Gary Oldman on uh, the the cover of the Mersey Sorrow which is that's a nice little it's a little ditty yeah it's a good little ditty yeah so um, so tell me a little bit more when you met David Bowie um, tell me about your experience there was it kind of what was the energy like what was his presence his it was just chill he was just chill it's just like hello nice to meet you how are you doing good and you know one of those people that was genuinely there when he's there um, and I think, you know, for me the big test if you meet someone who's a name is if they actually introduce themselves. That's a big one. And I, I have to say, I met Justin Bieber and he said, hi, I'm Justin. And so for me, he's okay. Passes in your book. <laughs> he, not passes, he passes the test. And that maybe seems a little bit simplistic, but it's kind of true. Uh, if it's someone, not being a person, right? Yeah. If someone says hi in response to, hello, my name is Joe and it's very nice to meet you, they just say, Hi. You know they're a dick. <laughs> so you just reminded me of a situation which is going to be embarrassing to tell, but I'm just going to go with it. So years ago, probably one of the first celebrity I met was Keanu Reeves at a Dog Star concert. And like he was doing the signing and he obviously didn't want to be there. And you know, I was like, I'm a big fan of you in Speed or I, you were great in Speed or something. And he just like, you know, just like one of these, you know, sort of thing. Like didn't even say anything. Uh, yeah, well, it sounds like he was a little burned out. Sounds like it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so tell me about uh, Fiction Plane, how the band got together. And, uh, so Fiction Plane's been around kind of since I was in school, which is like 56 years ago. Um, and it kind of evolved. We moved to America. We got an American drummer. We have an English guitarist. And right now we all live in different places, so we're in a crazy spot. So uh, we're just, and we have young kids, all of us. So Fiction Plane is, we're, we're, uh, we're coming back with something this year, but we'll see. Everything moves a little slower right now. When you have kids and never, yeah. yeah when you have kids, the, nothing else happens. Yeah. To quote James Hetfield slightly. <laughs> That's a great poll, so. 
so you you played with Snoop Dogg with as uh, Fiction Plane too. Did it tell me? Did anything? Did you party with Snoop? Did we party with Snoop? Well, let me tell we shared uh, the tour bus with his road crew, and I would wake up every night terrified, and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to figure it out, and then I'm thinking, oh wait, it's because I'm obviously totally stoned, secondhand in my sleep, through the air conditioning. But, again, he's like a chill guy, but hard to see through the clouds of smoke. Uh, and I, you know, I got, I, I recently, walked into an establishment wearing a Wu-Tang Clan t-shirt and the, the guy looked at me and he said you don't really seem like that kind of guy and I'm like I've toured with Snoop I'm absolutely that you couldn't pull it off huh yeah I'm, I'm so that guy man come on I got the cred card are you kidding <laughs> I've been fully paid up member of like being yeah being as white as this yeah now your most recent album is Mondo Luminia. Tell me about how, the process for writing that and how it kind of was, was different from your other albums. Whoa! Getting loud in there. Yeah. So Mondo Lumina was not created in a nuclear explosion. <laughs> but no, actually. So usually when we write albums, we go to a basement, play loud music for 25 hours, and then pick up the best bits. And in this one, uh, Mondo Lumina, we all had kids, and we kind of didn't want to do that anymore. So we actually set up in a living room and played music with everybody there. Like, kids around, making yeah. noise, making mess, the lights are on, the windows are open. And Mondo Lumina kinda means like lots of light or a world of light. And it was about letting, letting the rest of our lives into making music. Yeah. And not just being a, you know, basement band anymore. Yeah. When, you, when you play do you, and, and tour, do you bring your family with you? Or? Uh, I, tr I try. I like it. Yeah. I like having people around because it gets yeah, it gets lonely and pointless yeah. pretty quickly. You know, bus stops in not bus stops, gas stations in Toledo are much the same as gas stations in Akron. Yeah, pretty much the same thing. Yeah. And so, do you have any time to spend in the city today? After I mean, uh, not today. Obviously, you're you're a little busy today, but so busy. <laughs> <laughs> but after today, are you going to be sticking around for a little? I'm bit? not sticking around today, but I've spent quite a bit of time up in San Fran. Yeah. Actually, here's an interesting story, or maybe it's going to be weird. About two weeks ago, my wife blindfolded me and put me on a plane, and I landed in San Francisco. She then put the blindfold back on, and I ended up inside a large auditorium, and she'd taken me to see Trevor Noah live at the Masonic Temple. Oh, nice. And I didn't know that until he came out on stage. Yeah. So but you didn't even know you're a big Trevor Noah fan? I mean, Obviously. he's quite funny, yeah. but it, it was, it, I'll tell you what. It was, it was more about the surprise. It was more about the surprise and the experience of that, but it, he was good live. Yeah. He was better live than he, you know, he's, he's been doing that for a while. Yeah. Daily Show, he's getting there. He's, and he's building his, uh, his crowd, I mean, a lot, obviously, through that. Obviously, he's got big shoes to fill with the big Daily Show. Yeah, but, you know, John Stewart didn't, he wasn't the best thing in the world in he the beginning. He didn't start out like, oh, my God, he's the greatest guy ever. But by the end, he was the sage who knew everything. It's like playing concerts too, right? I mean, you don't start out, you know, playing, uh, big, you know, big venues like this. You uh, you start out playing clubs and you yeah. build up and build. You start up. out sucking. Yeah, so you have to suck to get good, right? You suck to unsuck. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Put in your time. So. Yes, exactly. Your ten thousand hours. Yes. Well, Joe, thank you for taking the time. Thank today. you. Wait, we're gonna we're gonna do a high five. Look at my elbow. While okay. you do it, look okay. at my elbow. Okay. Go one, two, three. Ah. Oh. Did it? This elbow. Oh, okay. Do that. There you go. See, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good smack. <laughs> there it is. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. 
That was the interview with Joe Sumner. Joe, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Sumner. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Yes. And uh, yes. So, so, so next up on the concert pipeline stage, Joe, we have, uh, again, Holly Palmer. She was in David Bowie's band. I talked to her uh, about that and get and interacting nice. with him and how she... Uh, how nice. She, An original band member. That's impressive i know it's it's really cool it's just like and that that's that was kind of the theme of the night i mean really was obviously a celebration of david bowie so most of these conversations i made about david and how he impacted them and uh and their lives and and that sort of thing and where and how they got into his music and all of that um you know last week had a great interview with uh you know uh, with gary oldman which was really freaking awesome um, for him to take the time. Marlo helped make that happen also, by the way. Wow. Because Marlo is clutch, dude. She was. And uh, and so the, uh, I, Gary was – I sent you the picture of him. He was very involved with the whole evening. He was up in the cameras and checking the shots. He was – I mean, he sang a couple of songs, um, but not, he wasn't on, by any means on stage for most of the evening. Um, very cool. Yeah, and – um, and so he was hanging around during the sound check, and he was actually uh, standing next to Joe Sumner. And uh, and so I went Very over, cool. went over and introduced myself and asked him if he'd do the interview too. And Joe said, "Don't do it. I'm already doing it." So, <laughs> but uh, cool. uh, I can't hear shit. That's what life right now, Stephen. I uh, I am powerless. I don't feel powerless, but I am powerless. Um, listen, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta wrap. We gotta wrap. I gotta go. Well, let's uh, let's bring Holly Palmer in here now and uh, and take a chat with her and um, and here's Holly Palmer. I'm Holly Palmer, and you are listening to Concert Pipeline.
check, check, check. All right, I am here with Holly Palmer. Holly, how are you doing? I'm great, how are you doing? Doing excellent, I mean, this is amazing. We've been watching the sound check here for like the past hour. And it's, I mean, first of all, an hour sound check is incredible, but celebrating David Bowie, like, you can't get better than that, right? Yeah, and when, when the people come and fill this place and are leaning towards the stage because the music is so beautiful and rich and it's, it's David's music coming at them, it, it's, when we did it in Los Angeles, it was very emotional. It wasn't like you go to a gig and you stand there and you leave early. Every person that came stayed all night and it was a real celebration, a, a real celebration of his music and I, I feel like who he was as an artist and what it meant to everyone. Not just how great it was, but you're sort of you're sort of celebrating with the person next to you about how much it meant to them too. Yeah. What was it for you? Like what for David Bowie? Like what draw you drew you into his music? Well, I was in his band and I recorded with him a bit um, from about 1998 to 2000. Um, I, I joined him singing on a song called Thursday's Child on, this, on an album called Hours, and uh, and then I was asked to join for VH1 Storytellers, and then a little while after that it was Let's Go On Tour, and it was a really wonderful experience. So I, I'm very happy to get to to celebrate him with everybody else in this way. So you of course did the LA concert then a few weeks back as well, right? Yes. And how was the response of that? sold out very quickly and as I said everyone who came you just felt how happy everyone was to be there yeah. and I, it just was so it, that was so special and and kind of unexpected because we we know the music we know how great the music is we get to come together and do the music but then for to share it with a group of people that just loves the music that's a, it's a whole nother level of sort of communing around around him and his work and what a great artist he was. So how did you meet Bowie? How did you get, how did you become part of his band? That is a kind of a crazy story actually. Um, there's a guy on stage named Mark Platty who's playing bass and um, he was, he engineered and produced with David and um, take two steps with me over here. Let's do it. Let's just, I just need to see if I need to jump up there but um, let's see, okay. Changes. Okay, let's go back out. <laughs> okay, we're good. They're doing changes, by the way, for on sound check. This, this epic, never-ending sound check. Um, no. So, so I got a phone call one day. I was in my apartment in Brooklyn, and this this great musician that I knew named Reeves Cabrels, who had written some songs with, called me up and he said, "Hey, I'm with Mark Platty. I didn't know, even know that they knew each other." He was. We're working with an artist, and um, we want, we're looking for like a TLC kind of a thing. And I was doing something else at the time. I was doing like a mailing list for a gig I had coming up, you know, so I kind of had the phone stuck in my neck, you know, and I, was, I just started going, Don't go chasing waterfalls, please stick to the rivers and the lakes. And I have sudden, I, I realized that I was now on speakerphone because I heard this voice saying, Could you do it once more with a little less vibrato, please? And then the phone dropped. <laughs> and in the back of my mind, I knew it was David, but I didn't want to deal with that. That, and so I was like, "Okay," and I just did it. And then there, and then Reeves was like, "Yeah, right. Be here in an hour." So I went to the studio and we started working together. And it was a match made in heaven. Like so. I mean, it was, it was an interesting journey with him because, of course, I knew he was amazing. I, but what I knew of his at that point 
was what was on the radio. I knew China Girl and I knew Let's Dance and I knew Modern Love, that stuff, which was amazing. But that's just that's just like a tiny drop of his work, you know. Yeah. So, so as we as the band got rolling, we started doing all the old hits, and I believe that's the first time he started doing those live after a very long time. Yeah. And so I was learning all that music in his band. I was l- learning it and loving it and falling in love with it. Wow, we were working together. And it's like the longer that we worked together, the more starstruck I was. Yeah. And it was just like, oh my God. And this one, and this song, and this song. Like, you know, Ashes to Ashes, and Changes, and Life on Mars, and all these songs. My mind was just blown every day at rehearsal. And, and so tell me about like when you're watching him work like I mean did, did like how is that like what did what did you see in, in him like while he's creating well you know he had a real interest in the details but he also knew when to let people just do their thing you know like he kind of let me do little ad-libby things and let me kind of create the sound of our section with my friend M who sang with me um, but also there were certain things he wanted to kind of get just right. You know, he'd sort of be sitting there talking to someone and the band would be playing and then he might say, hey guys, you know, that bit right there, let's dial that in a little bit. So just sort of a very, um, he could sort of see all the way around it. And, and But he also was a, a guy who was really about feel as well and it, it needed to feel right. And I think he had an amazing way of, of um, bringing people into his world that had unique and wonderful things to share. Like Gail and Dorsey, like every single person in the band was just a real special person to get to know as well. Yeah. So what was what would you say is the most magical, as we're here for a magical night, what would you say is the most magical part for you of that whole experience? You know, the whole thing was incredible and I wish I had kept a journal. Like my friend Mark, well, I just mentioned Mark Gladdy. Yeah. He um, he told he remembers all these things, and I was like, "How do you remember everything?" He said, "Because I had just started doing a blog, so he has all this stuff." And I have bits of that, but there were so many things. But there was one moment that was so interesting to me, uh, where we were in Italy, and you know, I guess we were on, on a sort of an Italian schedule where we were supposed to start at a certain time, but we actually started much later than that. So there had been a lot of sitting around and kind of waiting with so finally we get up and we're getting ready to do our thing and we all had our in-ear monitors in and there was some loud feedback that happened like ear splitting right into the monitor inside your ear and we all were kind of like whoa and David I actually think that he had it more than we did maybe they were checking his mic but it was loud everywhere anyway he just he didn't get mad he didn't throw a fit, he just kind of like, he just kind of took a step back, pulled the monitor out of his ear and just kind of nodded at the guy like, all right, you guys work on this a little bit. But he was such a gentleman about it and I know that it had to hurt. Yeah. And I just thought that is, that is a gentleman. Yeah. So uh, as it was kind of coming to an end, did you know kind of what was happening? At, I mean, the band and David Bowie. As it was kind of coming to an end, did you know kind of what was happening? Like that it would, that it would I mean, was there like a conclusion for you with, with David Bowie, or did you... When I worked with him, you're saying? Yeah, worked with him and a personal relationship. Um, yeah, for me, I, I was ready to write another album, and I wanted...
into, I'm a solo artist. I've done a couple of background gigs, which are really fun with artists like David, of course. But mostly I do my own stuff, so it was time for me to make a new album, so I actually moved from New York to Los Angeles to kind of have a change of scene. But we stayed in touch and emailed and, you know, happy birthdays and stuff like that. So tell me a little bit about your solo material. What do, you, do you have anything coming out? What you... I, uh, yeah, I actually am just finishing something. I just actually started a pledge music campaign um, to pre-sell it, but um, I've been, you know, had record deals. I've been signed, you know, three times. I've put out four records, three of them on my own, and I, I sort of hit a point where I was kind of didn't really wasn't finding anything kind of new or personal to say. And then I had a son in 2009. Congratulations. Thank you very much. He's an amazing, amazing kid. Um, he has cerebral palsy. And when he was born, he had a brain injury. We were not expecting that. It was a perfect pregnancy, and life just changed in an instant. And so I spent a couple years like, how do I take care of my guy? What does he need? I, I need to figure this out. So me and his dad went, were on this wild adventure with him. And then when he was about two, a friend of mine called me up and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've got this great kid, Maceo, and this is what we're doing. And he said, are you writing about it? And I said, well, not little bits, but not really. He said, let's write songs about it. So I've written an album about our adventures. And um, it's pretty cool because as I'm sharing it with people, other families and people that know somebody with CP or don't know somebody with CP, it's sort of shining a light on a part of the community that people don't really understand yeah. but it's joyful pop music yeah it's not sad no no you know what I mean and, and how did you get to that place like where you can like be so positive I mean obviously you have the you know your son and every, I mean and you, your love for him and everything but I mean it, to kind of make it such a poppy you know, you know what I'm saying you, you know I, I he brings us so much joy he's just such he's just a ball of energy and light and fun and yeah we are some days are gnarly and it's like we're like what the you know trying to find the right doctors how do we help him do this because there's a ton of things physically that he can't do but those are not the important things about him if you know what I mean and as we you know like I said the first years pretty tough and as we just kind of went on and went on we just kind of found our way and you find other families that have that mindset and you realize that that is the way through yeah. You know, hope and love really are the way through those dark times, yeah. just like they say in all the books and poems and songs that we love. So. And, you, and you found it therapeutic to kind of write uh, out some of the stuff you were thinking, you know, around the situation? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't thinking it was therapeutic. I was thinking it was my truth. Yeah. And I guess in that, now seeing what it's doing doing for other people, that that's, makes me feel good. If it could be therapeutic for other people, how great would that be? Yeah. You know? So that's a long, long answer yeah, to a short know, it, No, it's good. It's good. Awesome. Well, Holly, thank, thank you for taking the time to, oh, to chat you, today. And, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this show. And it's going to be so good. It's yes. going to be so much fun. Yeah. And it's, like I said, emotional. That's the word. Not, not a sad emotion. Just like, that's a celebration in the, in the biggest, best way. Yeah. So how many, how many songs are you playing on tonight? I'm doing uh, Where Are We Now, uh, which we just checked. And I'm doing the last song of the night with Joe Sumner, Under Pressure. Excellent. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm going to jump up and sing backgrounds on a few. I was only I was going to sing on a couple, and then last night at rehearsal, a couple of the singers weren't there, and Gary was like, come on, come on, where are you going? And I'm like, oh, I'm not singing on that. He's like, no, no, come on. So now I'm singing on a bunch of them, so it'll be a party. It will. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time, Holly. I appreciate Thank you so it. Much. 
All right, that was the interview with Holly Palmer. Um, and so we're going to wrap this podcast up here. Um, there's just a, a couple of quick notes I wanted to do. Uh, we won't call it music news, but just quick bullets I wanted to let you know about um, real quick. And that is uh, Axl Rose could possibly be taking over the, the lead singer spot for ACDC. You couldn't help yourself, could you? I couldn't. Um, You're all, we won't do music news, he says, yeah. and then he turns the mic on, and he's like, a couple quick uh, things here. Uh, uh, Metallica. Um, you son of a bitch. Metallica's stop. Stop. I don't have time. I have to go. I have to, put, I have to look at my GPS or I'll get fucking lost. Okay. Well, there it is. Um, why don't we wrap it up? <laughs> You're like, I go, well, okay. There it is. We're going to wrap the podcast up. Joe's got to go. Uh, so go. in more ways than one, I have to I have to get on my GPS and I have to take a wicked shit. All that coffee got things moving, Stephen. It did. Well, um, we're gonna pl- uh, play us out with one more. Um, I'm scared to fart. If I fart, I might poop. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm, well, clearly, I'm not gonna do it. I'm just scared. I'm Especially scared. on the podcast that you know, you don't want well, that. I think that would be pretty fucking great, honestly. You should. Okay. Okay. Do it. Ready? Go. Make, okay. All right. I'm gonna. All right. It was just a fart. Oh, phew. Okay. Uh, our, our audience is disappointed, though. They usually are. <laughs> wow. Uh, so we're going to play this out with, with one song here, which Holly and Joe were both on. Uh, and uh, this is uh, Under Pressure. And um, next time on the podcast, like I said, we're going to have uh, Jerry Harrison from Talking Heads jeremy and jeremy little as well um and then we also for our 100th episode joe we have something really exciting planned um uh for you so stay tuned for for that we'll uh, a special performance from live in the vineyard uh here in uh napa and um and joe might actually be in that interview which is really awesome i probably won't be i'll be working the camera but it'll be cool either way maybe we'll see all right for everybody in concert pipeline that is stephen jones that is joe wilson bye everybody I don't know what that means to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. Yeah. All right, go, go. In five, four, three. We want to thank the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir and Sunday. It's pretty damn great.